Well, um, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 24 of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol, or swear by a false god. They, that is, that person, singular, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a custom that every once in a while we take a break from whatever we're focusing on and we go back to the Psalms and we just pick up where we left off and we just do one after another. Eventually we'll get through the whole book. Oftentimes we wait until a gap in between sermon series is to do this, but since the Gospel of John is, might be the longest sermon series of all time in the history of Hope Prez, uh, it's good to take a break every once in a while. Especially since today is Christmas Eve. Um, and this psalm has a very uh, Adventy theme to it. I thought it would be good for us to do this today. So, Psalm 24. It is all of the psalms, uh, how do I say this? At least 50 of the psalms are designated and marked off for singing together in worship. All 150 are good for corporate worship together. This particular psalm historically has been viewed as uh, what they would call an antiphonal psalm which means it is a call and response. And you can kind of hear that. Who is this King of Glory? And everybody says, the Lord, strong and mighty. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord, mighty in battle. Maybe one day we'll do that together as a call to worship. That would be fun. Uh, but today what I want to do is I want to show you uh, the, the message of the psalm. And that liturgical antiphonal thing kind of helps us to see it because I think the best way to get the message of the psalm is to look at it in sections. There's three sections in the psalm that fit together. It's almost like three different movements of a liturgy. And the meaning and the theme of each section, it, it builds uh, to where you get the whole message of the psalm. So what I want to do is I want to look at it together one section at a time. 
and then we'll step back and then we can see how the whole thing fits together. So uh, three sections. The first section is verse 1 and 2. The second section is verse 3 through 6. The third section is verses 7 through 10. And they each have a different focus. So the first one. Section 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The big idea of this section is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. It says, everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And by everything, I mean everything. And that's really important for us. It starts off, it says that the earth is the Lord's. If you guys... uh, uh, I don't know if you guys were here when we did Genesis 1 through 3, but you four, well, you three were. She wasn't here yet. Uh, I was here, so I guess that's four. Uh, we learned in Genesis 1 that the word earth, the Hebrew word eris, is actually the word for land. And we that was important as we interpreted Genesis 1, the creation story about God creating the land. And, how that represented something particular in that particular passage. Well, here it means land, but we can see from this context that it's not just talking about a particular place, as we saw in Genesis 1. It's talking actually about all of the land. All, and we see that because it's coupled with the synonym world. The Hebrew word there uh, is the same as the English word. It means like the inhabited earth. It's the earth and the people who live in it. And then the psalmist goes sort of an extra mile just in case we don't understand that, that he's talking about everything. And he says, he says uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. So the psalmist wants us to know that the whole world, the earth, the land, uh, the people, uh, the countries, the cities, the institutions, everything belongs to God. Why is that? Well, because he's the creator. It says he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. This is a direct allusion to the creation story. You guys remember Genesis 1? How did God... uh, Uh, create the dry land by parting the waters, gathering all the water into one place and causes dry land to appear. So when he says he founded it upon the waters, the psalmist has that in mind. But there's also this idea of waters in the ancient world represented the unknown, the chaotic, uh, the big and the wild and the scary. What the psalmist is saying when he says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. He is saying that God brought order to chaos. He took the unknown and made it known. He brought it together. So when we look out at the world, we not only see the land and the trees and the birds and the sky, we see institutions. We see societies and cultures. 
So the psalmist wants us to know from the very beginning, the whole message of this first section is that God owns everything. Everything you see, it's his. Now, that's sovereignty. Especially in our Reformed tradition, the word sovereign gets thrown around a lot. And with words that we use all the time, it's good for us to stop and check in and make sure we actually know what they mean. The word sovereign is often used to describe a king or a queen, a monarch. Uh, but it means supreme power or authority. The person at the top. The person who has absolute the highest level of power or authority in the land. So God not only owns everything, but because he owns everything, he's the supreme power. He's the authority. What the psalmist is doing, psalmist, it's David. We learn from verse 1 that King David wrote this. It says, of David, a psalm. David was a king. He was the king of Israel. Just like we read any biblical text, if we know who the author is, then we want to try to see the text through the author's eyes. Uh, we want to try to discern how they would have thought about what they were writing because they were being guided by the Holy Spirit. So as we read this, it's good for us to try to see this psalm through a Davidic lens. David was the supreme power and authority in Israel during the later part of his life when he was king. So when he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, for he founded it, he's thinking about the kingship of God, the monarchy of God. David was king over Israel. He's saying, but God is king over the whole world. David is the highest authority in the land, but he's saying, God is actually the true king. He's the one above me. David wants us to get the idea into our heads that God is king over the whole world. That God is king over the church, his people. God is king over our institutions. God is king of our communities. God is the king of Portland. God is the king of the PCA. God is the king of our friend groups. Now, for us, especially as American, uh, I guess you could say American evangelical Christians living in the 21st century, uh, this might be a challenging idea. There's something in the water of American evangelicalism, I think, that doesn't really want to believe this. I think we are okay with the idea. In fact, we love the idea that God is king over the church. And that's true. But there's something in us that doesn't quite want to accept the fact that God is king over everything. We might say it. People might say, oh, Jesus is king. But do we really believe it? Think about how we culturally, as evangelical Christians in America, tend to carry anxiety about the world and about the culture. What's going to happen? The world is just getting worse and worse and worse. Things are just all falling apart. Everything's destined to burn. And what we need to do is we need to make God king here. Well, the psalm says God is already king. 
We see we might know people and we might have read about or heard about movements of Christians who, um, who, who want to separate. Maybe you grew up in this. I, I kind of grew up with a foot in this. We want to separate from the world. We want to establish our own little niche subcultures. We, just, we want to go to only Christian schools, only hang out with Christian people, only listen to Christian music, only read Christian books. Why? Because we want to live in God's kingdom. And we have fear of going outside of the walls. And the psalm says, no, God's kingdom is not limited to our cultural enclaves. He owns everything. I remember riding the car with my dad when I was a kid. This was in the 90s. And me and my brother were into Christian rock. <laughs> and we were riding in the car with my dad. And my dad was listening to the radio. And there was some... Uh, it was some pop song about love, which means it could have been billions of songs. And I remember riding in the car, and my dad was into the song, and I said something like, Dad, I, I can't believe you're listening to this. He was like, what are you I was like, this isn't Christian music. This is, this is evil. This is questionable. And he goes, what's this song about? And I listened to this. It's about love. He said, doesn't love come from God? And I just, like, I couldn't compute. Like, <laughs> But I think we do that. So we need to understand, first of all, that everything belongs to God. He is the king over everything. Okay, we got that. But, right, there has to be a but, because we look out and we don't see the world living in submission to God as king. We do see a world that's falling apart. A world of people, everybody going their own way. We struggle with sin. Uh, our institutions are not always helpful. <laughs> In fact, a lot of times they tear down. Our leaders are not always righteous. In fact, many times they're not. So if everything belongs to God, why do we not look out and see a world perfectly at peace, perfectly in communion with him? Why is it that the world seems to be raising up against God? Well, that's a great question, and the answer is in the next section. The next section is verses 3 through 6. It says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord. They is singular there. So that person will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Such is the generation, that's a plural idea, and we're talking about a group, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. So the theme, the big idea of the first section is God's sovereignty, and then the big idea of this section is God's people, or God's person starts off with this singular thing and then it moves to this plural thing. So the people, or the person, of God. That's this idea. Now, if we look at God's sovereignty, and then we have God's people, we see an idea beginning to develop. Although the whole world belongs to God, although he's king over everything, he manifests his presence in certain places, among certain people. It's not the same everywhere you go. 
It's not the same with every people group. Again, if we try to think of this through a Davidic lens, David was king over all of Israel. But, uh, especially in the later part of his life, uh, early on, and in the later part of his life, uh, he was the king of all of Israel, but in Judah, they seemed to be a little bit more tuned into what he was doing than they were in the northern tribes. Also, David was king over everything, but he still had his inner circle of people. He had his court. He had his family. He had his mighty men. He, we see concentric circles of closeness to David. I think David is thinking about something about that idea here. God is king over everything, but in certain places, among certain people, that kingship is more, uh, maybe not more real, but it's more activated. So let's look at the text. It says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? Uh, The mountain of the Lord. Uh, all across the world, throughout history, this is one of those things that you find in, in just about every culture throughout history. There's a, the, the idea that, that mountains or the places that are high in elevation are associated um, with majesty. They're associated with uh, majesty or with the presence of the divine. Uh, if we think about uh, all across the world, you can find temples and churches and monasteries on the tops of mountains. Tops of, not just the Christian world, not just the Jewish world, but all over the world. Different religions, different places. The idea of high places is associated with the presence or the, with the blessing of the divine. We even do this today in our culture. Think about where the most expensive properties are in the city of Portland. They tend to be on the tops of hills. They tend to be, uh, Chip, you work, you've worked in several high-rise buildings. Where are the most expensive apartments? Pearl District. Pearl, Pearl District, but in the building. Oh, top floor. On the top floor. We, we do, there's something in our human psyche that says the higher you go, the, the more awesome, the more divine, the more blessed. Now, we see this in the Bible. Think about, uh, to me, the life of Moses really stands out. Where did Moses encounter God in the burning bush? On top of a mountain. Then he goes and he leads the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Where does he take him? Where does he take them? To a mountain. What happens there? They meet God again. In fact, a lot of people think it was the same mountain. Uh, And then God establishes a covenant with them there at Sinai. And then they wander 40 years in the desert. When it's time for Moses to die, he dies in God's presence where? On top of a mountain. Throughout the Old Testament. Where does Elijah meet God in, not in the whirlwind or the storm, but in whisper? He's on top of a mountain. Where did the disciples see Jesus uncloak and show his glory? On top of a mountain. Where did Jesus go to pray? Not of olives. On top. All throughout Scripture. So this idea of God's presence being associated with certain places. David says 
mountains. Uh, that's there. But he doesn't just say the mountain. He says the mountain of the Lord. Sometimes that phrase is applied to Mount Sinai because that's where God met the people of Israel. But more often it's applied to the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. It was God's city. In Jerusalem, God, in David's day, God's presence, God's kingship was manifested more than anywhere else. David was the anointed king. And where was his throne? In Jerusalem. Later, when the temple was built, where was it built? In Jerusalem. So David's saying, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? We get the idea of what the mountain is. Now this idea of ascending. Who can go up there? Who can go up there and be with God? We, we might think about how Moses climbed the mountain to be with God. But the people of Israel had, had to stay down. They couldn't come up. It's interesting that David connects the idea of God's sovereignty, God's kingship, with the idea of approachability. David, is, David can't conceive of God as king without including the idea that that king is and needs to be and should be approachable. It's incredible that David, in his time and place, associates the mountain of the Lord with uh, approachability. Somebody, who can go up? Somebody's got to go up. That was unique in his time and place. If we look at the religion of ancient Greece, you know, where did the gods live? Mount Olympus. They lived on a mountain. In Greek mythology, nobody goes up Mount Olympus. In fact, there, there was actually one guy, I had to write his name down, uh, what was his name? Uh, Bellerophon? Any of you guys heard the story of Bellerophon? Oh, yeah. No? <laughs> In Greek mythology, he was the one guy that climbed up Mount Olympus. And what happened? Well, Zeus got mad and hurled him back to Earth. In other religions at this time, God is on the mountains, but people don't go up there. But in the religion of the people of God, it's somebody's got to go. Who can go? That's significant. Um, for David, as he thinks about Yahweh, he's the Lord. He's the sovereign. But his sovereignty implies fellowship. And that's something that separates him from the gods of the nations. That's something that makes him unique. But not just anybody can go. Who can go? Well, it says that the person with clean hands and a pure heart, that person can go. And when that person goes, it brings blessing to the whole generation, to the whole group. Okay, so we think, go back to the Exodus thing again. The people of Israel gather around Sinai, but only one person can go up the mountain. When the, Moses And when he goes up, something happens up there that establishes a blessing for the whole people group. That's what's going on here. Somebody with clean hands and a pure heart can go up. When that happens, this is the generation that receives the blessing of the God of Jacob, the relational God, the God who struggles with us and lives with us and invites us to know him. That's the idea here. But it's framed as a question. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? 
Well, clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands, that's purity, righteousness of actions. That's what we do as righteous. Pure heart, that's purity or righteousness of intentions or desires. So who is the person who's righteous on the inside and on the outside? That person can go up to the mountain. It's a question. Well, is that me? Is that you? Is that any of us here? When they ask this question in the liturgy, maybe at the temple, generations after David, who can ascend? Imagine if you were there hearing it for the first time. You think, well, not me. You look around. Does anybody here have clean hands and pure heart? Well, that's the point. There's tension there in the psalm. It's supposed to raise the awareness of our own impurity, of our own unrighteousness. As David thinks about this, we have God establishing God who has established sovereignty over the whole world. God who's king over everything. And he has made his home on his mountain. You think about Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. and uh, There, that was the place he manifests his presence among his people. But who can go? Who can approach him? Who can receive his invitation to relationship? And the answer is, well, nobody we know. That answers the question that we asked before. If God owns everything, if he's the king of everything, why does his out there not look like his kingdom? And the answer is because none of us are actually qualified to really participate in it. None of us are actually qualified to approach him. What David is doing is he's starting to draw out and paint a picture of a rebellion against a monarch. He's saying that God is the king, but here among us people, in our actions, also in our intentions, in our desires, we, we can't go be with him. We are a people who have been cut ourselves off. We are a people in rebellion. And because God's sovereignty is absolute, he's the, he's the absolute sovereign then subjection to him is not an option. No matter where you are in the world, no matter what's going on in the inside of your actions, you will submit to God as king. That's the first section. But now we look at this, and the question doesn't become whether or not the world will submit to God. The question becomes, are we going to submit to God in beautiful fellowship with him? Or are we going to submit to God in enmity with him? Separated from him in rebellion. That's section two. The question that we can end this with is what is God going to do? How is he going to fix this? How is he going to take the kingdom that he has and make it right? Only we see this in section three. Section three is verse seven to the end. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? 
the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. first section is God's sovereignty. The second section is God's people or God's person. And we can't find them. The third section is God's glory. The third section is about God coming to his kingdom to reclaim what is his out of this rebellion. That's what we see. In this passage, it describes a picture of a king approaching a city with his army. God is called, and the king is God. The king is God himself. It says, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He's the king of glory. It's translated in our Bibles as Lord Almighty. And some translations might say Lord of hosts. Some translations say the Lord of armies. And in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's, it's Lord Sabaoth. And that's God's battle name. That's God as the captain of the heavenly armies. So the picture here is God coming to the rebellious city, his rebellious kingdom. Well, let me back up. Picture is God coming to a city that has walls and gates. And he's coming as with his army. He's coming in glory. He's coming to... uh, and he's standing outside and, he, and he's calling out for the gates to be opened. Lift up your heads, O you gates. But there's something more than that. Lift up your heads, O you gates. In the ancient world, the city gate was where the city's court met, where the city council met, uh, where business was done. The gates were the uh, hands and heart of the city. So think about who has clean hands, who has a pure heart. God comes with his army up to the city walls and he says, open up, open up your gates. Open up your hands, open up your heart. That's the picture. Now what the psalm doesn't tell us is we don't know whether the nature, we don't know the nature of this city. And this psalm has been interpreted in different ways. One interpretation is that this is a city that represents the rebellious nature of humanity. This is the city of man. And God has come to reclaim it as the city of God. And the image here is that God rolls up to the city gates with his army and he tells the gates to open up because he's going to come in and conquer the city. That's one interpretation. We think about David's life. Maybe he got this idea when he was thinking about, a lot of scholars think he might have been thinking about his experience um, of taking Jerusalem uh, from the Jebusites. When David was made king, he was actually crowned king in a place called Hebron. And after several years of his reign, he wanted to establish his home base in Jerusalem. It was the city on the hill. It was Mount Zion. But Jerusalem was held by a people called the Jebusites. And nobody, when the Israelites took the land, when God gave the land, nobody could conquer the Jebusites. They were in this stronghold city at the top of the hill. Uh, David was the first person to go conquer them. And in the story, he actually goes up to the city gates and actually calls out to the city and he tells them he's about to attack them. And they say, look, you." they actually say that uh, uh, they make some derogatory comment about saying that David's army was like an army of disabled people. And that made David angry and he actually broke into the city and, and took it. Um, 
Maybe David was thinking about that when he rolled up to Jerusalem and they called open the gates or something like that. They wouldn't do it. So what does he do? He storms the city. God gives it to him in battle. They take it over and it becomes David's home base. It becomes Jerusalem. And later it would become the place where the temple was. It's the mountain of the Lord. Maybe that's it. Another way this has been interpreted is that God is coming with his armies up to the city and he calls for the gates to be opened, but he's it's, the city is already the city of God. And God is coming, returning from a battle. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord Almighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He's returning victoriously from a campaign to take the enemies that are out there. A lot of people think that David wrote this thinking about his own life. Uh, after he had established his home base in Jerusalem, he had gone out on a campaign uh, to defeat the Philistines in the last stronghold of the Philistines. And the Philistines at the time had possession of the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. That was where God's throne was. And David goes out and he defeats the Philistines and he brings the Ark back into Jerusalem. And you can read in 1 Samuel 6, you pr probably heard the story of the famous celebration procession where David's leading the Ark back into the city and he's out in front dancing. Uh, and they, they bring the ark in. That would make sense because they would say, open up the gates. Open up the gates to Jerusalem. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Well, only the person with clean hands and a pure heart. Remember that that one guy in the procession had reached out and touched the ark and God struck him dead? Well, no clean hands or pure heart there. <laughs> only, only... Only the one with clean hands and a pure heart. Now David put on the, the priestly garment and danced before the ark as it came in. And the picture there is that God's throne, the ark, God is coming into the city. So maybe it's that. Either way, God has come to reclaim and retake what is his. The idea here is that God is king over the whole world. The world doesn't recognize his kingship. Not even in the places where he has manifested his glory most clearly. So what does he do as the king? He goes out with his army to take it back, to conquer it. And reestablish uh, his people, reestablish uh, Jerusalem in this day. Today we would say reestablish the church as his home base in the world in order to bless the whole world with his presence. That's what the psalm's about. Now, it's interesting that in verse uh, 5, it speaks about vindication. It says, such as the gender, uh, it says, the, the person who ascends the hill will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him or seek your face, God of Jacob. So the person who ascends the hill, the person who takes the city for God, or the person who comes back from the campaign to re-enter the city, that person and all of their generation, all of the people with them, they get to receive vindication from God. Now the Hebrew word that we translate vindication uh, is one of the Hebrew words that sometimes is translated righteousness. And I wrote it down, but let's see. Oh, this is cool. Uh, the word is tzedakah. 
and it means righteousness or justice, but it has a legal connotation. Sadaka, righteousness or justice. When there was a court case or uh, something like that, the city magistrate or the judge, once the person who was charged of a crime or the person who had a debt uh, and paid it off, whenever the person uh, fulfilled their legal obligation, where they were charged with a crime and they served their sentence or they had a debt and they paid it off or something like that. Once the person fulfilled their legal obligation, uh, they were declared sadak or sadiq. So sadaka, righteousness or justice, but when in a legal context, when someone fulfilled their legal obligation, guilty or not guilty, the matter was settled. The judge would declare them sadiq, declare them righteous in front of the people. What David is saying is that when God's person, clean hands or pure heart, which we can't find that person, ascends the hill of God, or when God himself comes as king and ascends the hill for himself and takes back the world, the whole generation gets to be declared righteous. Now that's important because David had already shown us that nobody's hands are clean, nobody's hearts are pure. Do you see the gospel story coming together in this? That's what this is about. In this psalm, David is showing us a picture of a world that belongs to God, but a world that has embraced rebellion and God coming back to reclaim it and retake it. And when he reclaims it and he retakes it, he doesn't do it by slaughtering all of his enemies. No. He does it by changing the hearts and actions of his people and declaring them righteous so that now every person can ascend the hill and have communion with God. That's the picture. Now, uh, there's clear connections to Jesus in this. We can clearly look at this and say, oh, well, Jesus is the one with clean hands and the pure hearts. He is God's person. Jesus is the one who went into God's presence. Jesus is the one who fought the battle to defeat sin and death. Jesus is the king who brings God's presence back into the gates. This is about Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. We can see that, and it's beautiful. It's a picture of the gospel. But here's the one thing I want to draw our attention to today and leave it there. It's this. When Jesus came, whether we take the interpretation that he came in order to break through the gates and take the world back for God, uh, or we take the interpretation of Jesus going out and fighting the battle and coming back to God's city in a victorious procession, either one, when Jesus goes out to break the rebellion in the world, to reclaim it for God, when he goes out as the captain of heaven's armies, as the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of war, how does he fight? This is the thing I want us all to leave with our, in our heads and in our hearts today. Does he go out like David, crushing his enemies? Does he go out wielding a sword? Does he go out and conquer using all of his power to overcome people? Well, in a way, yes, but not like we would think. We can't really read this psalm 
and see it as God's action in the world and see it as a psalm about Jesus if we stick with our Davidic lens with God's person and God's action in the world being crushing the rebellion we have to see it through also a Christological lens first interpretation God comes up to the city gates with his armies he says open the gates I'm coming in crushing the rebellion how did Jesus do that? When Jesus rolled up to the gates of the rebellious world, um, and when he came in, he came in as a baby in weakness. Born in a barn, laid in a feeding trough. His mom was a poor young woman. And in God's eyes, that's captain of heaven's armies. That's power and wealth. That's the one we should fear. And that's the gospel twist in this. Take the other interpretation. God goes out and he crushes the rebellion and in this psalm he's coming back to the city, back to the city of God in this glorious procession. Well, after Jesus won the battle of taking back the world for God, he won it at the cross. How did he ascend into God's presence after that? Well, he ascended as a crucified king. Nail-pierced hands and a heart that had been heavy carrying the sins of his people. Again, do we see him coming in great, as we understand it, military power? Not really. That's important. Let's go back to the way that we culturally think about God's kingdom in the world. We say, okay, God's kingdom is here in the church, yes, but surely it's not out there. We get anxious. The world is just falling apart. And then how do we respond to the world so often culturally? We want to fight a culture war. We want to show our strength. We want to take back the nation. We want to leave them work. We even want to fight battles over Christmas. <laughs> like when I was growing up, some of you might have remembered in the 90s, big deal. When people start saying happy holidays, no, it's Merry Christmas. Is that the way Jesus reclaims what is his? Is that the way God comes with his heavenly army? Is that the way he broke down our city gates? Is that the way he ascended back into heaven? No. Very different. So, today, as God's people, living in a world in rebellion, living in a city famous for its ungodliness, who is king here? God is. And how is he making that known and how is he manifesting his kingdom? Humility and what some would call weakness. That's because God's power doesn't come to us like we express power to other people. So we looked at Jesus, born in weakness, crucified in weakness, and ascended in glory but bearing scars. And we say, Who is this King of Glory?
was the Lord mighty in battle. And so today, there's a third way to interpret the psalm. It's not just God coming up to take the rebellious city. It's not just coming, God coming back from taking the rebellious city. It's God coming to our hearts and saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus out there with his army. His army of vindicated sinners. And his glory as God's warrior and wounds that he bears. And we hear God say to us and to Portland and to the world, us to lift up our heads and see him and open the gates of our hearts and receive him. Let's pray.